Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Satan hates you. Satan hates you. I never want you to forget those three words. Satan hates you. If you have new life in Jesus Christ, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan hates you. I mean, he hates your guts. He wants nothing more than to ruin your testimony for Jesus Christ, your worship of God, your love for others. He wants you to sin. He wants to tempt you to sin. He wants you to doubt God. Those doubts about God, those don't come from God. They come from Satan. And to fail to walk by faith. He wants you to fail to walk by faith. See, when we sin, Satan is standing ready to accuse us before God. Satan hates us with a relentless passion. The dragon, he's real. The war is real. And you and I need to be ready. The LA Times, not my source of truth, but they did carry a true story a few years back of a man by the name of Jay Raffman. Now, Jay was out hunting deer in a wildlife reserve. And he climbed out on this rocky ledge and he raised his head to kind of look up. You know how you're climbing out on a ledge? He raised his head to kind of look up and see what was above him. And then he says this, quote, I caught a movement to the right of my face and I instinctively pushed myself back. And that's when the rattler struck as in rattlesnake. It missed his right ear. Now this snake was about four feet long and its fangs got snagged in the neck of his sweater. So he's stuck with this thing, stuck in his sweater. And the force of this snake lashing out at him caused the snake to land on his left shoulder. Then it coiled around his neck. So what do you do at this point? So it coils around his neck and he grabs it with his left hand and he could feel the warm venom running down the skin of his neck. So then Jay fell backwards because this is how these things go. He slid headfirst down the steep slope through the brush, through the rocks. His rifle and his binoculars fall off to the side. And then he said, I ended up wedged between some rocks with my feet cut uphill from my head. I could barely move. He's having a bad day. He got his right hand out and he got it on his rifle and he used it to kind of disengage the snake fangs from the sweater. But the snake had enough leverage to strike again and again. And referring to the snake, he said this, He made about eight attempts and managed to hit me with his nose just below my eye about four times. Now that's a close encounter I don't want to have. And he said, I kept my face turned so he couldn't get a good angle with his fangs. But it was close, very close. Eyeball to eyeball, I found out that snakes don't really blink. I had to, I know, that's great, isn't it? 
I had to choke him to death. That's too close for me. That's why I live in Alaska. I had to choke him to death with my own hands. It was the only way out. Well, that twisted snake, that twisted snake is a perfect, perfect picture of Satan because he will choke the life out of you. He will strike whenever he can. His poison is deadly and he wants to kill and rob people of life. And it is going to take some extreme, extreme measures to get rid of the serpent of old. But it's not up to us, is it? It's not up to us. Christ has already defeated him at the cross, praise God. But Satan is still fighting, still striking, still lashing out. And we need to watch out for his deadly strikes of temptation in our lives. But the victory already belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to live defeated lives before the dragon. We don't have to give in to every temptation to sin. But here's where it starts. And hear this, it starts with the understanding that as the people of God, we are a part of a much greater conflict. See, beyond what we can see, behind what we can see, there's a war that's going on, isn't there? There's a war that is brewing, and it's described for us in Revelation 12. So we begin with verse 1. John writes, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now if you remember, if you've been with us, we've been looking at the second half of the tribulation. When we left off in our study in chapter 11, the seventh trumpet judgment of God had sounded. But here's what you need to know. The details are not told to us until chapter 16. The seventh trumpet picks up again in chapter 16. And these chapters, sandwiched here in the middle between this, are zooming in. You know how you zoom in when you're taking a picture on your phone? Well, that's exactly what it's doing here in the book of Revelation. It's zooming in, putting a specific focus on some of the events of the second half of the tribulation. Now, within chapter 12, this is the first scene that is describing this conflict with Satan. This is the first scene. And they're described as signs, not as wonders. The King James misses on this. It's signs, not wonders. It's the Greek word for signs. Because they describe something that God was about to reveal, about a, a warning of what would happen during the second half of the tribulation on earth. The first scene is a woman in labor. This woman is none other than the nation of Israel. The Old Testament describes Israel as a woman in labor. If you're writing notes down, you can look up later Isaiah 66, verse 7, Micah chapter 4, verse 10, and Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Now the sun the moon and the stars. This part is so cool. This is a direct allusion to Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. Because it was in Genesis 37 that Joseph, one of Israel's sons, had a dream where he saw the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bound down to him, the 12th star. Speaking of Joseph, it says this in Genesis. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. 
See, Joseph understood his family would bow down to him in Genesis. They would be preserved through him. And it's a description of Israel's family in the book of Revelation. The father, the mother, and the 12 sons who later became the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. The sun is Jacob. The moon is Rachel, Joseph's parents. You cannot miss the illusion here in Revelation 12, a reference to the nation of Israel, who throughout the Old Testament, like a woman in labor, was anxiously awaiting the coming of her Messiah and deliverer. So this first scene, this first scene is a woman in labor, Israel giving birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this is certainly true that this happened when Christ was born to the Virgin Mary. But hey, the context goes a little different here. The context suggests it's referring to the emerging nation of Israel in its suffering before the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's even more specific if you dial down on it, you dig a little deeper. It's not just the ethnic nation of Israel that's being referred to. It's the remnant with faith. Believing Israel during the second half of the tribulation is going to be under intense, intense pressure. Israel crying out labor pains in verse 2 are the labor pains she will experience as a nation before the second coming of Christ. So the second scene is a dragon Waiting. All right, here we go. Verses three and four. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The second scene is of a Great fiery red dragon. Verse 9 is going to tell us that the dragon is Satan. So you don't have to try to bring your own meaning to the text. We just look at the text and it answers some of these questions for us. Verse 9 says the dragon is Satan. Now what's a dragon? Well, a dragon is a flying serpent. That's all it is. A flying serpent, right? Satan attempts to do battle with Christ. He wants to do battle with Christ. He's been brewing with this for thousands of years. He wants to do battle with Jesus Christ. And he attempted this under Herod to devour the long-awaited child of the woman, the Messiah of Israel. And during the tribulation, he is going to empower seven world rulers over ten kingdoms on earth who are going to rule alongside the Antichrist over the whole world. And you can read more about this in Daniel 7, Revelation 13. This is the reference here in the text to the seven diadems on the heads. Seven royal crowns, seven rulers, over ten kingdoms that will make up the entire world. It is the revived Roman Empire of Daniel. And this beast represents Satan's control over the nations of the world, broken up into ten kingdoms. Isn't it interesting that the United Nations already has the world broken up into ten kingdoms or nations? At one time, this red dragon was the highest angel in heaven, God's highest archangel. But he rebelled and he recruited a third of the angels to join in him. That's what it means here in verse 4. When it says that his tail, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. One third of the angels, one third of the angels. Hard for us to imagine, isn't it? One third of these angels joined Satan in his rebellion against God. And after that, what did God announce in Genesis 3.15? He said this to the serpent. 
Very key verse. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. Notice this part. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice her seed, a prophecy of the seed of the woman who the Messiah, the Messiah. This verse is the first promise of salvation, the first hint of salvation in the Bible. Because the end of the verse is saying that when Satan bruised the the seed of the woman, when Jesus was crushed at the cross, the head of the snake was also crushed. Meaning that when Jesus Christ took our place on that cross, he was absolutely victorious over Satan. Now, Satan... Oh, he did everything he could to stop Jesus Christ. We see it in the scriptures when Jesus was born, inspired by Satan. Herod killed all the children in Bethlehem to and under to get this newborn king of the Jews. And he was warned by God. Warned by God, Joseph and Mary fled, fled to Egypt with Jesus. And Satan, Satan hounded didn't he? He hounded Jesus throughout his ministry. The Pharisees were always trying to stop him. Always. Every turn they were trying to trap him. And Satan seemed to succeed when they nailed the Lord to a cross. But did Satan win? Of course not. Verse 5 says, she bore a male child who was to rule, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne That child rose from the dead and is now seated in the place of all authority on God's throne. This is Jesus Christ who will rule all the nations with power and authority, with a rod of iron when he comes again. And not only did the child of Israel escape the persecution of Satan, he rose again, didn't he? He rose again and he ascended. Acts chapter 1 says he ascended and now he's reigning as Lord in heaven, waiting for the day when he comes again to take total control of the nations of the world. And so verse 6 teaches us, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by who? By God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So, With prophecy, you got to be careful because sometimes it'll jump from verse to verse talking about the first coming of Christ and then the second coming of Christ. First coming of Christ, second coming of Christ. And this is what we see in this text. Verse 5 refers to the first coming of Christ. The context is clear. Verse 6 refers to the second coming of Christ. Look for the time markers as you're studying the Word of God on your own. Look for the little time markers that help you understand the timing of the passage. And and it's the same in Revelation. It says 1,260 days. What is that? That's the last three and a half years of the tribulation, known as the Great Tribulation. At the midpoint of the tribulation, it's a key event that happens. The Antichrist, he's going to stand up in the temple of the Jews, and he's going to demand to be worshipped. And Israel will be forced to flee from her land into the wilderness or desert. And there God is going to do something. God's going to do something special for this nation. He is going to protect them for 1,260 days until the day that Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on earth. God looked after the nation of Israel in the wilderness before, and he's going to do it again. God's going to repeat himself. He's going to do it again. 
This will be the worst of times in earth's history. But even then, even then the Lord is in charge and he will care for his people. And see, that's the point of the text. God's going to care for his people. That's what we must believe if we're going to overcome the fiery darts of temptation that Satan likes to throw at us. You see, if you want to have a life as a Christian, if you want to have a life that doesn't constantly give in to the temptation to sin, you must believe that Jesus has already won the war, that Christ has already overcome the enemy. Christian, your Savior, he's above that dragon. He's not too worried about the dragon. He's not too worried about anything. Christ is above that dragon seated next to the Father in heaven. And one day he is going to run that dragon into the very pit of hell. Glory to God. That's the perspective you need to have because instead of celebrating sin, instead of embracing depravity in your life, you need to recognize that the day is coming when all the temptations that Satan can throw at you are going to be done away with. When the Antichrist steps into the temple to be worshipped, the people of Judea are going to flee to the mountains. Oh, they're going to run. They're going to flee. That's what Christ said in Matthew 24, 16. The people will flee to the mountains, which certainly could be. It's been talked about much over the years that it could be the ancient city of Petra, the ancient fortress and capital of the Nabataeans in present-day Jordan, carved into the stone, untouched, for centuries. It's preserved in part because the only entrance into the city you can see there is a passage between the cliffs that is only 12 feet wide at its widest point. Makes it pretty easy to defend, doesn't it? It's pretty easy to defend if it's only 12 feet wide. It could be that this is the place the Jews flee to. So Josephus tells us that people fled to the mountains east and southeast of Jerusalem when Titus sacked and burned Jerusalem in 70 AD. Petra itself could easily protect thousands of people, thousands, and the mountains around it could hide many, many more. You know, back in the 1920s, I get a kick out of this guy, a man by the name of W.E. Blackstone, he was so certain that it was Petra. He was so certain that the Bible was talking about Petra, that this would be the place that the Jews flee to, that he invested $8,000. That's a lot of money back then. He invested $8,000 to buy boxes and boxes and boxes of Bibles. And he put them in the caves so that the Jews would have them when they're hiding. There's a guy that believes the word of God, right? There's a guy that believes the word of God. The word wilderness in Revelation is a general word often used to describe the desolate area to the east of Jerusalem. And when Jesus warns in Matthew 24 to flee to the mountains, it tells us something. It suggests that they won't go west to the coastal plain, and then they won't go south to the desert region. So we don't know for sure if it's going to be Petra, but there will be absolutely a place prepared for them by God. God will protect them from the Antichrist and his armies. God will see to the needs of his people. Daniel 11.41 tells us this, that the Antichrist shall also enter the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Perhaps God is going to spare these ancient countries to the east of Israel to provide a refuge for his people. In 1994, 
on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, one of the TV networks, back when you only had a few TV networks, one of the TV networks interviewed two veterans who had been a part of this major battle, this major invasion. Now the first interview was with a Marine who had landed on Omaha Beach. And he remembered looking at the casualties all around him. He remembered looking at all the dead soldiers all around him. And he remembered thinking to himself, man, we're going to lose. We're going to lose bad. The second interview was with a U.S. Army Air Corps pilot who had flown over the whole battle area. See, he saw the successes of the Marines, and he saw the paratroopers who had landed further inland, and he had seen the effects of the bombers where they had destroyed many of the defenses of the Germans, and he looked at everything that was happening, and his conclusion was, we're going to win. We're absolutely going to win. And see, that's how I want you to look at everything that's happening in this world right now. We're going to win. And that's how I want you to look at Revelation 12. We're going to win. You may be in the midst of a battle in your life. You may be struggling with something. It's easy to lose perspective. But that is when we need the perspective from above to see that Jesus has already won, right? That dragon, that dragon's going to fall. And that's the next thing that we see in verse 7, where it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So this is the the behind-the-scene pictures here. This is the the behind-the-scene picture of what is going on behind the scenes in heaven. Now, right now, we know from the book of Job that Satan still has access to heaven. Michael, the archangel, is assigned as a guardian of Israel. And he will gather his army of angels together, and he will drive Satan and his demons out of heaven. Daniel 12.1 tells us that this will happen midway point of the tribulation. Satan is defeated at that point, but he still has access to the throne of God now. In Job 1, when Satan is among the angels of God, he accuses Job of only serving God because God has blessed him. And Satan says, hey, Job doesn't deserve you for nothing. Job doesn't deserve you for nothing. Take it all away. And what is he going to do? He's going to curse you to your face. In Zechariah 3, Satan is with the angel of the Lord, accusing the high priest of Israel. And then in Luke 22, Jesus was talking with Peter and the Lord said to him this, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. See, Satan is allowed in heaven today. I don't fully understand it. I'd be lying if I said I I understand why he's up there. But he is allowed in heaven today to slander God's people before the throne. That's a horrible thought, isn't it? It's a frightful thought. It's a scary thought. And he's looking down saying, God, your people aren't always serving you with the right motives. They're dirty, rotten sinners. And guess what? We kind of are. We are. We are dirty, rotten sinners. See, Satan, he loves to accuse God's people. And I think sometimes Satan and his fallen angels are behind a lot of the whispers and a lot of the churches and accusations in churches today. 
And that's why I'm always trying to warn you guys about being filled with pride and coming to church or driving home and putting others down just to make yourself feel better about yourself. These type of things don't come from God. Satan doesn't need your help accusing the brethren. He doesn't need your help with that. Right? Verse 10 calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before our God day and night. But be thankful that we have an advocate in heaven who defends us. He defends us from all those accusations. What does 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 say? It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the who? The righteous. See, there's coming a day when the devil, he'll slander us no more. He'll slander us no more. He's going to be booted out of heaven along with the rest of the fallen angels. But this won't be good news for the people of the earth at that time. See, Satan, Satan will dwell on the earth and vent his anger towards the people on the earth. The earth becomes the sole focus at this point of his destructive terror. We like to think of, of Satan as the king of hell. We like to think of Satan down in hell right now, just ruling over the demons and ruling over the lost people. But that's not where he is right now. Some like to think of Satan as someone that can be pushed around by speaking against him, by mocking him. But what does the text say? It's going to take an army of angels led by Michael to remove him out of heaven. There's going to be a war in heaven during the tribulation. See, John tells us in verse 10, he says, Then I heard a, a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. He accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. John heard a hymn of praise uttered in heaven. He heard this hymn of praise uttered in heaven by a loud voice. Do you get the impression? I hope you do that the residents of heaven, they love to worship God, get used to worshiping God. These are probably the voices of the tribulation saints killed, killed for their faith and now in heaven. The salvation these saints of God are singing about is not salvation for eternal life. Don't think that. It's a reference to the deliverance that's coming as God completes his program and ushers in his coming kingdom. This is looking forward to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom on earth. In heaven, there's going to be a celebration because our accuser is going to be thrown down. He's already defeated. The day is coming, though, when he's going to fall, and I hope you believe it. You see, these saints, these saints are praising God because they know that the casting down of Satan, it means that the kingdom of Christ is just around the corner. The kingdom of Christ is just around the corner. Satan, if you think about him for a second, he's had access to the very presence of God for countless ages. But when Satan is finally cast out, it's worth singing about. It's worth praising God for. And then, Christians, declare your witness for Christ. I see people standing for this country all the time, but I see few people willing to stand for Jesus Christ. He shed his blood for you. Stand with him. Tell people you belong to him, that he's your savior. It's the only way you're going to overcome the devil. Verse 11 teaches us this. And they overcame him by what? by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Many years ago, Pastor Donald Barnhouse, he led the son of a wealthy family to the Lord. This young man, 
had been in the military. But even in the military, this young man had a strong witness for Christ after his conversion. He would witness before the other soldiers. That's not easy when you're in the army. He had witnessed before the other soldiers. But then the war ended and it was time to come back home to his wealthy life that he was used to. And he came to Barnhouse and he told him he was afraid. He was afraid that he might slip back into his old habits. And Barnhouse had a solution for him. He told this young man to tell the first 10 people he met now that he was home from the war that he'd become a Christian. And he told the young man if he did this, he wouldn't have to give up his old friends. They'd give him up. Yeah. He met a girl. This happened. He met a girl and he told her the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me has happened. And she asked if he was engaged to be married. And he said, no, it's even better. He said, I've taken the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. Her expression froze. She mumbled a few polite words. And then what did she do? She walked away. Then he met one of his old buddies. Again, a frozen smile and a quick change of conversation. Soon word had gotten around and some of his friends stopped seeing him. What had he done? Nothing but confess Jesus Christ. I do not understand Christians who do not confess Christ and witness. Today, we see the Christians letting the world change them instead of Christians proclaiming Jesus Christ. It's a shame. Christ came to divide, and your confession of Christ will separate you from this lost and dying world. Look again at the victory of the tribulation saints now in heaven because they had been killed for their faith. Who's it talking about? Satan. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Stunning rebuke on the church today. See, Christ provided the victory. Christ conquered Satan with his blood at the cross. His blood is what makes us pure. But those who will be killed for their faith in Christ take part in the victory because they have the privilege of laying down their lives in the same manner of the Savior. Satan's going to be kicked out of heaven. I can't wait. But these saints of God, they're not ever going to be kicked out of heaven. We overcome Satan by trusting in the blood of Christ and by sharing in the witness of Christ, even if it means our own death. The blood on the cross disarmed Satan, according to Colossians 2.15. The blood on the cross made Satan powerless, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Trust Christ. Share his witness. Because if your focus is on sharing his witness, and if living for him is your focus, then your life is not focused on all your problems. Because you can't have your eyes on your problems in life and your eyes on Jesus Christ at the same time. You cannot do that. You cannot have your eyes on Jesus Christ and fixed on this stupid world at the same time. When I hear people go on and on about their problems, I say, hey, Turn your eyes upon who? Jesus. That's why the hymn's written that way, guys. Satan, he likes to spread lies. He likes to deceive the world. You counteract that by sharing the gospel of Christ. That's what you do. Why? Because the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. James 4, 7 tells us to submit to God. Resist the devil. And he's going to what? Flee. How do you resist the devil? Submit to God. How do you resist the devil? Submit to God. 
Tribulation saints will not love their lives to the death because instead they will be living for Christ. They would rather die than be proven unfaithful to the Lord. They'd rather die than be proven unfaithful to Jesus Christ. The heavens were told to rejoice, but the earth is now warned that Satan is cast down. Verse 12 is the song of praise. It's still this song of praise heard in heaven. Let's read it. It says, therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. When Satan is finally kicked out of heaven, heaven will rejoice. But it spells trouble. It spells a lot of trouble for the people of this earth. See, he's going to come down with great wrath too. And he will take out his anger on the people of the earth. And when Satan is kicked out of heaven, he will know that he only has a certain amount of time remaining in the days of the tribulation left to rule on the earth. And this is going to anger him. This is going to really upset him because after this, he's going to be bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. And starting in verse 13, our text, it moves to the earth during the second half of the tribulation where it continues and says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and a times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. When Satan no longer has access to heaven, he's going to turn his attention towards Israel, the woman who had given birth to the Messiah. He'd rather stand in heaven and sit there and rip us apart. He'd rather stand in heaven and sit and accuse God's people. But if he can't, he's going to chase after believing Israel. Satan hates God's people because we're part of the family of God. See, we belong to him, so he hates us because he hates God. But God doesn't abandon his people, so he's going to give them some help. Seen here with two wings of a great eagle, helping the remnant of Israel escape to the wilderness, to the place that's already prepared for her. The wings are alluding to the power of God to help Israel take flight to a safe place. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. Remember what he said? And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Then Israel will be nourished for a time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, half a year, the 42 months of the Great Tribulation. No one is going to be able to buy or sell during the Great Tribulation without the mark of the beast. God will provide a witness God will provide for believing Israel in the wilderness. But what does the serpent do? He spews out water out of his mouth like a flood after her. A flood of persecution and destruction. Same metaphor that is given in Daniel 9.26, referring to when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And shortly after the man of sin sits in the temple declaring himself to be God, he will discover that his enemies, the remnant of the Jews... With faith in the coming Messiah, they're escaping. And so he will chase after them with his soldiers, with his army, like a flood as they flee right into the wilderness. But watch how God protects Israel, starting in verse 16. But the earth helped a woman 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 13.8, it tells us that two-thirds of the Jews are going to die in the tribulation. God is going to protect the rest so that they're not completely destroyed. Otherwise, Israel would be wiped out, killed. God is not done with Israel. God is going to have the earth swallow up the flood of soldiers chasing after them. Israel is going to run for the hills, the caves of the earth. And one-third of the nation of Israel is preserved in the tribulation. But Satan is enraged with Israel, making war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Christ. Satan will continue his war with the rest of the offspring of Israel. Satan is going to try to stomp out faith in Christ on the entire earth. He's trying to do that now. And yet they will hold to their testimony. They will keep the commands of, of God. Now we know why God sealed the 144,000 witnesses for him back in chapter 7. Because if you look ahead, hear this part, at the context of chapter 13 and the first part of chapter 14, you begin to recognize the literary structure here that's prevalent in the book of Revelation. And the context is going to tell us that the rest of the offspring of Israel here are the 144,000 witnesses scattered over the earth, sealed by God, protected by God, and preaching Jesus Christ. Their testimony, oh, it should convict us, and it should inspire us. They are going to have a faithful witness for Christ during the worst time in earth's history. May the Lord help us to have that same kind of testimony for Jesus Christ. On July the 21st of 1861, Many of the people from Washington, this illustration goes to show that the people in Washington haven't changed in a couple hundred years. Many of the people from the city of Washington, D.C., rode out on their horses and buggies to the fields outside of Manassas for a picnic. Many thought that a picnic would be a great idea. It'd be the perfect way to spend the afternoon. Besides... They could watch their Union troops put an end to what they thought was a tiny little rebellion. So they arrived at the battlefield. They put out their blankets, thinking they would eat and cheer from a distance like we do at a sporting event today. These are actual pictures from that day. Some people showed up as early as 3 a.m. Some things don't change. They showed up as early as 3 a.m. to be able to tailgate in their little coaches. Hard to imagine, but people really don't change. One soldier described them, look at those little kids watching on. One soldier described them as a throng of sightseers, saying that they came in all manner of ways. Some came in stylish carriages, others in buggies, on horseback, or even on foot. A reporter from the London Times was there, and this is what the reporter observed. Quote, the spectators were all excited, and a lady with an opera glass was quite beside herself at the sound of discharge of the cannons, saying, oh, that's splendid. Oh, my, is that not first rate? But it wasn't long before the reality rushed in as a real war broke out. 
And with the sound of gunfire, the sight of blood, the screams of wounded soldiers, the spectators soon realized this was no picnic. Mothers grabbed their children. Husbands called for their wives. And everyone ran for their wagons and jumped onto their horses to get out of there. Some of the spectators were caught in a stampede of retreating Union troops. The Union didn't do so good in that battle. One man, a congressman from New York, was caught by the Confederate soldiers and was kept as a prisoner for nearly six months. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, surely this would be the last time that onlookers would do something so foolish that they would take picnic baskets to a battlefield. But it wasn't. It took time. It gradually ended when the hardships of war began to sink in. And yet the sad thing is we see Christians making the same mistake every day, playing around, playing around in life and having a picnic while there is an eternal conflict going on, only to find out too late that they are in the midst of a war. I find it hard to be around Christians like this. I find it hard to be around Christians that don't take the word of God seriously or take the testimony for Jesus Christ seriously. Not out of legalism, but I just don't want to surround myself with people like that. Because I, I look back in the word of God to the testimony of the faithful saints who have gone before, and I look ahead to the tribulation, and I see the bold witness of the tribulation saints who will lay down their lives for their faith. And I also see the testimony of the 144,000 believers who depend on the blood of Christ, not ashamed to declare their allegiance to Jesus Christ, resisting the devil by submitting to Christ. Not loving, the text says, their lives on earth more than their relationship with Jesus Christ. Willing to lay it all down because of what Christ did for us. I don't know what Christians are scared of. Death for us is entrance into the very presence of Christ. Why are you scared of that? Where all of us who know Jesus one day are going to witness Satan's end. He's a defeated enemy. But he has some fiery darts that he likes to throw our way to unsettle us in our faith, to rob us of our assurance and peace in Christ. Fiery dart number one, God is against you. See, Satan likes us to think that God is not really for us. How can you believe that he's for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Your life is awful. Fiery dart number two, Satan likes to remind us of our sins, even though they've been forgiven and fellowship with God has been restored, making us think that someday we're going to have to pay for those sins. We're going to have to earn the grace of God, even though they've been taken care of fully at the cross. Dart number three, Satan likes us to reflect on our own track record in the past because we've all blown it. We've all blown it. Satan likes for us to reflect on the past, to look at our failures, to make us think that there's no hope. There's absolutely no hope of a better future tomorrow. Satan wants you to cower in fear. Satan wants you to either think you have to try to earn the grace of God, or he wants you to think that God's grace means our responsibility to now live for Christ is so very, very little. And the Apostle Paul tells us this in Ephesians 6. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Satan has an army, but oh yeah, so does God. 
including two-thirds of his created angels, and he has the people of God. We are the army of God. Get in the battle with the other Christians standing for Jesus Christ because you will never have the life. Hear this. You will never have the life that God intends for you to live apart from the body of Christ. I saw an estimate the other day that the daily average, every single day, from the time you got up to the time you go to bed tonight, every single day, eight believers in Christ around the world are being killed every single day for their faith, for their testimony. These are just the ones we know about that make the news. It doesn't include places like North Korea, Iran, Nigeria, all these different places. But here we are fighting for the American dream, fighting for our picnic. God has given you one life on earth before he comes. It's a precious, God-given life. Don't waste it. I see far too many people wasting their lives. I don't want to stand before my Lord and be ashamed of how I lived. Fight the good fight. Have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let Christ win the victory in your life. Let him change you. Let the word of God change you. God's grace means we're not condemned before him. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. God's grace, God's mercy has washed us clean. But we can absolutely waste the life that he's given to us. So draw near to God, Christians, and he promises us in the word of God he'll draw near to you. And you do not have to fear Satan. Christ expects you to take a stand for him. So put your stupid picnic basket down, whatever it is, and take up that shield of faith. Then rest in him. Trust his promises. And then live in his wonderful grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.